Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 521, where we explored the interviews with Aaron Hutchison. In that episode, we went into a lot of detail, both the things that Aaron was saying, and more importantly, the tactics that were used by the detectives that were interviewing him. We had a lot more uh, exposure, I guess, to how much Don Bray from the Marion Police Department was involved in the investigation. Even me personally, I wasn't aware that he was so heavily involved. Uh, he actually conducted most of the interviews with Aaron. He was there uh, even when he was in West Memphis. He also was the one that interviewed Vicki Hutchison. Uh, and as we heard at the end of the episode in the clip we played from West of Memphis, Jerry Driver, again, a lot of proponents of the guilt of Damien Eccles have made points to me on social media for several months that Jerry Driver wasn't that involved and why do we keep pointing the finger at Jerry Driver he had no involvement well, as you heard in his own words he was very much involved you know he directed the police to the list of suspects including Damien Eccles he was very much connected with uh, Vicki Hutchison uh, she said on the stand that the police didn't know the West Memphis police didn't know what she was doing Whereas Jerry Driver said that's not true. They knew exactly what she was doing with the, the whole sting operation with Damien Eccles. Uh, Vicky says it was Jerry Driver's idea to have the satanic and witchcraft books in her house. So he was very much involved. We learned a lot. But the bigger point for us is to learn the tactics of the West Memphis Police Department, especially in regards to interview techniques, specifically interview techniques when interviewing someone who is a minor or someone with maybe a diminished mental capacity with the mentality of a minor, which would perfectly describe Jesse Miss Kelly. So there was a lot there, a lot to cover. I know we got a lot of responses on social media, so let's go ahead and get right into this week's Friday follow-up episode. Okay, Bob, first, before we get started, Let's talk about your most recent trip to New York City. Yeah, so as we mentioned, I think we mentioned on the Friday follow-up last week that I, we had to record early because I had to go out of town. Yeah. And so I want to let you guys know what I was doing. In our season one case, we covered the the serial case, the case of the murder of Heyman Lee, uh, convicted of that crime was Anand Syed. So that was our season one case. We covered it in depth. We launched a brand new investigation uh, going above and beyond what the police ever did. 
We worked a lot in conjunction with the Undisclosed podcast, and in my opinion, proved beyond any reasonable doubt in Ansayed's innocence, and even pointed to an alternate suspect. Well, as you guys know, on the same day that Edward Eights was got the news that he was paroled from prison, we got the news on the, the 29th of March that Anand Syed's, uh his conviction had been overturned, and the higher court upheld that. So it's, it's still overturned. And with that news, of course, all the media outlets are wanting to talk about it. And Nancy Grace has a new TV show. And I know there's probably some hisses there for now about Nancy Grace. It's called Grace vs. Abrams. And it's on A&E on Thursday nights at 11 p.m. And the producers of that show contacted me and asked me if I would be willing to come on the show and be kind of the counterpoint. The show, the show is kind of a debate format. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Nancy's shtick is that everyone's guilty, and she gets very loud and obnoxious about that. And they wanted somebody to come on to be able to counter her to have a discussion about the case. Uh, and so that's why I was gone last week. They flew me out to New York City to go uh, be in studio and record the next episode of Grace and Abrams. And so that episode will drop on April 26th, which is next Thursday. Next Thursday, Grace and Abrams will drop about the Anand Syed case. Um, I'm, I'm on the entire show. I was the first guest on and stayed on through the whole time. I'm interested to see how it turns out. I'd love for you guys to watch it and let me know. It was kind of a, I feel like I will be portrayed as being very much outspoken or, uh, you know, uh, loudmouth. Bad guy. Bad guy. <laughs> and part of that was the producers wanted conflict. You know, they told me, they literally told me to interrupt Nancy. Uh, because, quote, she won't stop talking if you don't. <laughs> but more so, I was outnumbered. So that with all the guests and Nancy and Dan, there were five at one point six people on the panel that all believe that Anand Sayed is guilty against me being the only one on the panel that believed that he was innocent. So, you know, I, that's why they had me out there the whole time. But so you'll, I, I argue with everyone. A lot of the time, you know, so I'm because everyone is making counterpoints that I obviously disagreed with or had something to say about. So I was engaging with everyone on the stage where everyone else uh, pretty much said their piece and let things go on. So um, I think it'll be good next Thursday, the 26th of April at 11 p.m. on A&E Grace versus Abrams. And while we're on the topic of travel, uh, I did also want to mention CrimeCon's coming up, and it'll be, I think it's in, look at the calendar right now, uh, when this drops, it's two weeks. Two weeks will be at CrimeCon, that is Friday, May 4th through Sunday, May 6th in Nashville, Tennessee. Hopefully a lot of you guys are going to be there, and even for those of you that are not going to be attending the actual convention, we're going to be doing a fan meetup of sorts. A lot of true crime podcasts are going to be at the fan meetup. And that will be Friday night. I think we we landed on 8 p.m. at the Fuse Bar, uh, which is in the hotel, which I don't remember what it's called. Something Opry Hotel. Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, but it's on the website. If you go to CrimeCon's website, it'll show you where the uh, where the hotel's at, where the convention is. Within that building is the Fuse Bar. And I think I'll be there. Aaron and Justin from Generation Y will be there. Nick and Captain from True Crime Garage will be there. Lisa Strawn from the Crime and Precedence podcast will be there. I think Brooke Giddings will be there. Uh, I don't want to leave anybody up. There's going to be a lot. A lot of your favorite True Crime podcasters will all be there. Uh, and for those of you that are going to CrimeCon, to the convention, we look forward to meeting everyone. We'll be on Podcast Row Friday and Saturday, which is where all the podcasts have a booth where you can come up and interact with us. 
Uh, and then have some I, merch. Yeah, we'll have some merch, some merch giveaways. We don't sell anything at CrimeCon, so you know, we you see last year we had just a stack of shirts that we just decided at random who to give to. Yeah, that uh, was that was kind of unfair. <laughs> it was mostly based on size. <laughs> it was like, oh, we got a medium left. That person looks like a medium. Hey, we got a shirt for you. And we've got some stickers and stuff like that. But then on Saturday, May 5th, I'll be doing a presentation on the West Memphis 3, uh, that being the the 25th year anniversary of the death of Stevie Michael and Christopher. So um, hopefully we'll see you all for there for that. Uh, the VIP party, I think we're doing a, a skit, which I roped you into also. With Jim, what? Wait, what? <laughs> with Jim Clemente. Uh, yeah, I don't. I, I wish I could give you more details about it. Um, <laughs> It's this on, is kind of a big deal. It's on a uh, stage. Yeah. I don't do stages. <laughs> in front of people. Like uh, to edit podcasts. Right. <laughs> in the dark. In the dark in room. In the dark room alone. <laughs> so, Ooh. yeah. So, Jim Clemente is one of the MCs. If I think maybe he's the MC. Uh, and that, that would be another podcast that's going to be around at CrimeCon is Real Crime Profile. Uh, but Jim is hosting during the VIP dinner. There's some sort of, they said something like the game show Mafia. I don't know what it is. They said, will you and Mike come on stage and be a part of this this bit with us and i said mike would love to do it <laughs> i sincerely quit. hope you're kidding i quit i hope you're joking <laughs> hope you're joking yeah uh, you're not I, i'm not nope. i'm not at all so anyway i think that's all that's all we have for housekeeping let's go ahead and get right into these listener questions all right judy was boring hello then judy discovered jumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy the Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Our first question comes from Stephanie. She says, I may have missed something somewhere. I need some clarification. Who or what came first? She has a couple points here. We'll try to put them in order for her. Okay. The police interest in Damien, Vicki Hutchinson, quote, playing detective, Aaron Hutchinson's interviews, and police interest in Jesse Miss Kelly. Okay, yeah, I, I saw, I think I even responded to that on social media, to, but to put it out there, it is a convoluted, confusing mess, and I don't know that I have the answer to it. I have the way it seems that it went down to me. So the boys are found on May 6th. Vicki Hutchinson is at the Marion Police Department talking to Don Bray when the boys are found and immediately starts talking to Bray about the murders, about Damien Eccles. Maybe it wasn't even, I take that back. It may not have been about Damien um, because she kind of introduces them to Aaron and then Bray interviews Aaron without Vicky present. And he says nothing about Damien in that interview. So that happened immediately. So that's going to be number one, the, the contact with Vicky. And then we know that that day, Steve Jones and Sudbury, James Sudbury, decided that it was a, a cult ritual killing, and the only person they knew that would be involved in something like that is Damian Eccles. We do also know now that Jerry Driver played into that, that, that he had said Damian Eccles was someone that they should be watching out for. 
So I, I think it would be within immediate succession of each other, uh, Vicky Hutchison, then Damien, and then I believe that they wanted to use Vicky to get to Damien. This is my theory of how this went down. Um, Vicky has admitted she's lying, so I guess if you're going to argue that she wasn't lying, then okay. Uh, but, but she says that she was. She She's recanted. I think that after the interviews with Damien, they didn't really have anything on him, really at all. So they, they used Vicky and maybe even asked Vicky because she had that relationship with Driver and with Bray. Uh, do you know, I'm I'm guessing it's something along the lines of, do you know anyone who knows Damien? And she knew, obviously, Jesse Miss Kelly, who knew Damien to an extent. Um, it's still kind of up for debate whether they were close friends, acquaintances, friends. I mean, there's, these are all labels, but he knew Damien for sure. And so then Vicky... Uh, as she said, as you heard in that clip from West of Memphis, said that uh, she went to Jesse for the purpose of introducing her to Damien. And that's an interesting point in the fact that it's not so much about how Damien got roped into it. It's how did Jesse get roped into it? And really, in my opinion, because I, I believe at this point that the three are innocent, I'm not, I haven't made any any bones about that, that Jesse was just a pawn. If, I, if I'm right, and I'm not saying I'm right, but if I am correct, and the West Memphis three are all innocent, Jesse really is another incredibly sad story. Uh, he is, you know, he he has certainly a diminished mental capacity. He's got an IQ of, I've heard everything from 68 to 72. I think the paperwork I saw said it had an IQ of 72. Mental capacity of a third grader. And he comes into the picture for the sole intent and purpose of connecting Vicky to Damien. And so that Vicky, because there was more than this whole SBAT routine, was something that was that was concocted later. The initial plan was for for her to get some surveillance. She was she wore a wire. They had um, audio for sure. I don't know if video, but I think I, for sure audio surveillance set up in her house. And so the the idea was to get Damien talking. So that's Jesse's entire role was you know Damien, you know Vicky, you can connect Vicky to Damien, and then Vicky can try to get Damien to say something. So that happens. Damien doesn't say anything. She said the whole SBAT thing was just made up BS. And that was Jesse's entire involvement. And when they didn't get anything, and by the way, those surveillance tapes, and I don't know if I, I know there was questions about that. I don't know if you have it, but the police said that they destroyed those tapes because there was nothing on them. There was you, you couldn't hear, they said. The, the audio was too bad. There's no reason to destroy them. I don't see why or how that happens. Uh, just because there there isn't clear audio. And also, why wouldn't they have tested it first? You know, to make sure they get it, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but yeah, so Jesse's involvement is simply to make that connection. When they don't get what they want from Damien, they go back to the well with Jesse. And there's there's another piece of information that we'll be revealing uh, in the next week or two about Jesse that makes the story even more interesting. Actually, it'll be in two weeks because we already recorded Sunday's episode and I forgot to mention it. But Jesse gets brought back in because he's weak-minded. When he was brought in to interview on June 3rd, it wasn't as a suspect. It was to try to get him to say something about Damien. They were interviewing him about Damien, and then all of a sudden, by the end of the day, the only way to make this work is for him to say that he was there, witnessed, and participated in the murders. Um, so that's kind of the order of how things went. Jesse really was, you know, the target was Damien all along. Jason Baldwin wasn't a target. Uh, Jesse Miss Kelly wasn't a target. It was Damien, uh, and in order to get to Damien, they had to go through Jesse. 
And so that that's how that all played out. And well, I should say, let me let me qualify that. That's how it played out in my opinion. That's how things went down. This next one comes from Lori. She has a few questions about Aaron. Number one, it's interesting how Aaron minimizes Jesse Miss Kelly's role in the murder several times. How well did they know each other? I think they knew each other pretty well. I know by the time of Jesse's arrest, they knew each other really well. You know, we heard Vicky, you know, crying, saying that they were they were close friends, and Jesse was staying with her to help protect her from uh, a prowler. Aaron, through his stories, talks about Jesse. You know, everything revolved around Jesse. So, you know, he knows Damien because Jesse pointed him out to him, and he saw Jesse. Uh, he knows who Jesse is. So, I, I think they were. They were certainly close enough for Aaron to know who he was, and you know they were close. So, so we know on June second, I guess as we're going through a timeline, on June second, Jesse stayed at their house, so to protect Vicky. So, so he says, or so she says, and then on the fourth is when he gives the interview where he implicates Jesse. So by the time he did that, he definitely knew Jesse very well. He just spent the night in his house, um, but yeah, he tries to minimize him, but he's it's so he's so confused. When you read the transcripts at the beginning, he says, I saw Jesse and Jesse killed those boys. Mm-hmm. It was all Jesse. And then and then he backs up and there was four. And but Jesse wasn't one of them. Jesse was missing. But then Jesse had this one and Jesse hit Stevie and drowns him and pulls him back up and says he has to talk to his boss. But at the same time, Jesse's chasing him down while he's holding him down. It's a, it's just a, a big convoluted mess. But, yeah, I, I think that Aaron probably was trying to minimize Jesse's role in it. And he was also trying to get, in my opinion, we'll, and we'll learn more about this on Sunday, how this happens. I think he was just trying to get straight what the officers wanted him to say. And he was struggling. He was eight years old. Next, she says, would Aaron Hutchison know the difference between rope and shoelaces? Is it possible that he just misspoke there? I don't know if I can answer that because I would think so. I mean, my seven-year-old certainly knows the difference between a rope and a shoelace. The better question is that you should be asking yourself uh, next week is, would 17-year-old Jesse Miss Kelly know the difference between rope and shoelaces? Her next point is, Aaron says he saw the boys get stabbed with Jesse's knife. Since they weren't stabbed, shouldn't we throw out this whole testimony? There are 50 reasons why we should throw out the whole testimony, but that's one of them. I mean, there, there's these are factual inaccuracies. And then also, let's I mean, everything from there was five guys there. Well, who were the other two and why weren't they arrested? The stabbing with a knife, the rope, nothing. I mean, yeah, yes, the answer is yes. Yeah. It should be thrown out based on that. And more to that point, um, listener, I think his name is Chris Davis on the fan page, was doing a good job of, he he had challenged the fact that we were kind of throwing it out, throwing the whole t- thing out when there we should be analyzing some leads in there, and maybe there's a bit of truth. And Chris isn't wrong. The problem is, once you've identified that the child is being manipulated, and I don't think that we have many people out there, if any, that are going to argue that he wasn't manipulated into fabricating a false story because he gave so many, some of them are fabricated. So once that happens, then it affects the the credibility of everything. To me, I go back to the one thing that I find that may be accurate about his statement is the fact that Chris and Michael came up to his mom's car or truck after school and asked him to play with him. That, number one, is significant, and two, it rings true, only because he consistently said it happened. Even when he said that he was there and saw the murders, the story still always began with them asking his mom if they could go and her saying no and leaving. Also, Vicky said the same thing. At the very beginning, she said on May 27th, 
They came to the car, asked if Aaron can go with. I said no, and we left. That rings true to me, in my opinion. And it's an early statement before we get too deep into the weeds here. Also, listening to Aaron's mannerisms while answering that question and giving that part of the narrative, there's no hesitation. There's confidence. He's not tailing off. He's not giving qualifiers. He's not doing any of the telltale signs that would indicate deception there. He sounds like he's recalling a real memory. And the reason it's significant is because we don't know where Chris was after school. And so if he was with Michael right after school, and then they left, and then, and then of course they got split up, I think it may go further to my theory that I had said uh, way back months ago. And it's just a theory or hypothesis, but that they both had planned to go to Stevie's house. Michael had a bike. Chris didn't. And that's why Chris was five, ten minutes behind them. That Mike, I, I think they ditched him. I think that's what happened. Is that they that that Chris was always coming. Michael got there first. Michael and Stevie left. Chris shows up behind them, and I think they had just ditched them. Is what happened. And so I think that goes towards possibly answering the question of where was Chris Byers from after school until three thirty. And Tiffany wants to know: Could Aaron have been the fourth boy that keeps being mentioned? No, I don't I don't think so because again, like I just said, the what rings true to me is the fact that he asked to play with them and he was turned down. Uh that his mom said no and they left. And in Vicky's narrative, they went, I mean, she describes him going to the grocery store with her and being at home with her. He was with her all night. I don't think that Aaron Hutchison, if there is a fourth boy, I do not think it was Aaron Hutchison. I don't think he was with them any more than right after school when Chris and Michael possibly asked him or asked his mom if he could stay and play with them. I think after that he's gone. He's he's I think I think everything after that point is made up. Heather says, "Bob, you mentioned that Aaron was traumatized by these interrogations and I can definitely see why. Kids that age just want to not get in trouble, so they will say what their authority figures want them to and are easily swayed. So the interview pretty much did that. Has he ever come out in subsequent years regarding this testimony? Was it all a lie? Part of it was he fed a lie from the beginning from his mom and then the lie grew?" Are there things he really did remember? So Aaron did an interview with the Arkansas Times, and a few people have shared this on the fan page and our Facebook page. I think it was in 2001, um, So because I think he was 19 years old at the time when that happened or when he, when he gave that interview. And he says that he doesn't, and that's what I meant when I said that he's, he's just had a lot of problems from it, that he's been plagued with nightmares ever since. He actually doesn't know what he actually saw anymore. It's so convoluted. He doesn't remember why or how it happened, but he says he doesn't remember what he had said. He doesn't remember what he actually saw. Everything is blurred together for him, which is common when you have that kind of trauma at a young age. And it is trauma to be brought in and interrogated over and over and over again, especially if you have adults, which I believe happened, telling him, we need you to say this, we need you to say this. So, yeah, in later years, he's struggling. He was getting ready to go into the Army, I think, when he did that interview. And and really doesn't know what happened. There are some interesting points, though, in that article you should read. So both Aaron, and, and this is really interesting, both Aaron and Vicky say that Aaron originally, the very first person that he said was responsible for the murders was Chris Byers' father, Mark Byers, his adoptive father. In one of the interviews, and I think that I, I had mentioned it on, I, I pointed it out in the episode last week, that he said that, well, I already told Mr. Bray yesterday who did it. And but we didn't know who that was. Uh and there and I, as I said in the episode, there was there's we have no record of that interview. Well, 
Aaron and Vicky both say that he had implicated John Mark Byers. And then Vicky goes on to say that Gitchell, I, th- I think she said Gitchell, had her sign what she called an affidavit of silence. Uh, and she said that later I found out there's no such thing as an affidavit of silence. But they were both adamant that this happened. And what it sounds to me is they signed uh, an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. But they were told they were never allowed based on this affidavit or whatever it was that they they signed, they were never allowed to tell anyone that they had named Mark Byers. Uh, now, I don't necessarily think that's any indication of Mark Byers' guilt because I don't think that Aaron Hutchinson actually knows what happened. I, I, I don't. But it, again, going back to the West Memphis Police Department, if that's true, that is horrible. We know that Mark Byers was a criminal informant. He had connections with the police department. He was the only one interviewed as a suspect. There was a lot of, in his criminal background, things that were covered up, um, that were wiped away from his record. And then he's being protected to the extent where someone, a witness, who they later decided was credible when he starts naming the defendants they wanted to arrest. But at that point, he names first, according to both of them, first names one of the victim's fathers and they made them sign some sort of agreement saying they would never repeat that to anyone. So there's a little fun fact for you. Jan says, was there a parent present during Aaron's interview? No, I don't think so. Vicki Hutchison has said repeatedly that she was never present during the interviews, which is, I hate to just continue going on and on and on about how pissed I am that Hutchison, little Aaron, was treated this way, but, uh, and, and Vicky's just as much to blame for allowing it to happen. They're interviewing an eight-year-old boy with no psychologist present, without a parent present. Uh, but Vicky says she wasn't there. And when you, you know, in those interview transcripts, in the taped interviews, and some of the audios up on Callahan's as well, you know, at the beginning they always say it's th- this time in this location. We're interviewing this subject. Present in the room is, and they give the list, and then none of them does it say Vicky Hutchison. She allowed this to happen. She had to give her consent for that to happen. The West Memphis PD and and Marion PD knew damn well better that they shouldn't have done that, that you should not be interviewing an eight-year-old. I mean, there's laws in place now that require like a psychologist in some states to be present during these interviews, besides a parent. Uh, Somewhere where that child feels uh, a safety net, where they feel some protection, where they feel like they don't need to conform to what these men are saying because they'll see them as an authority figure and they will take suggestion and they will aim to please whatever whatever they think they perceive that the officers want them to say. But if a, if mom's sitting right next to me, that gives, it's a safety net. They could say, okay, I got, you know, you're an authority figure, but she's a bigger authority figure. And that seems silly because obviously a cop is, you know, the ultimate authority figure, but to an eight-year-old, you don't trump mom. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Joe says, what did Fogelman believe happened versus what he needed for a conviction? Do you think John Fogelman truly believed the satanic ritual story? Do you think he saw it as an easy angle to get a conviction? Did the whole police force buy the satanic ritual idea or did they just all go along? Was there any discussion or doubters of the satanic angle? I don't think it would have been too far off to think that if they thought the teens were guilty, then it doesn't matter how they get them. From everything I've seen, Fogelman looks very intelligent, even where he's wrong. He looks real smooth, scary smooth, if he wants you in jail. I And this is going to just be my opinion, but I, I don't think Fogelman believed it at all. I, and as a matter of fact, I think he was even on the record early on saying that that he didn't think that this was a satanic ritual killing. I personally think it's obvious that it's not. It's just, you know, John Douglas put it best when he said, this is just a murder. It's just a regular murder. There's nothing ritualistic about this at all. So there's a lot of pressure, especially in a smaller town like this or a smaller city, for any open murder case, but a triple murder of three eight-year-olds it, it found in such a horrible way, they had to close this case. I honestly don't think that Gary Gitchell, who was the chief inspector, I'm not a fan of Gary Gitchell, and and he can kiss my ass for the way that he allowed some of the stuff to happen, including what they did to Aaron Hutchison. But I don't think that he was going along with it. I think he was trying to direct the investigators to a more sensible investigative route. And there was just there was there was some rogue detectives behind the scenes, not even detectives. I mean, you got Jerry Driver, who's a juvenile probation officer. You got Don Bray who's the, I got someone corrected me, he's not the chief, he was the assistant chief at the Marion Police Department, the next town over, uh, you got Steve Jones, Sudbury, that are, are just doing whatever they can do to try to build a case against Damien Echols. It's obvious, whether he's innocent or guilty, people will argue with me, but I, but I would disagree with them, to say that they didn't have it out for Damien Echols. I mean, they were just 100% laser beam focused on him, and not looking anywhere else, those officers. While Gitchell was conducting a, a, an investigation the way he should be conducting investigation, the problem comes in when he bought into it. And I honestly don't think he ever bought into it, even when he said in a press conference when they arrested him and said their case on a scale of 1 to 10 is an 11. I don't think he believed that at all. I don't think Vogelman believed that at all. But they wanted a conviction. And in, in my opinion, the three convicted, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly, were nobodies to them. They didn't matter. Uh, they were they were poor. I mean, I'll, I'll use Damien Eccles' words that he wrote in his book. They were poor white trash, and they didn't care. They got their closure of the case. It was done with. They got to be heroes, and they solved the big murder. And who cares about these three kids? And that's exactly what would have happened. This this would have been over and faded into darkness if Joe Berlinger and, and the HBO crew didn't make Paradise Lost. The only reason anybody had any clue that something might be wrong with this conviction is because of the documentary and it got national and then international attention. And that's why uh, the convictions were then later challenged, but this would have just been brushed. Look, I mean, like look at that AIDS case, you know, not, not I mean, he's a you know, poor black guy from East Texas 
his case, in fact, had been swept under the rug. Blatant wrongful conviction, blatant police misconduct, blatant prosecutorial misconduct, and nobody knew, and so nobody does anything about it until somebody shines a light on it, and then we can we can correct it. So uh, that's not really the question they were asking, but I'm, I'm getting there. So Fogelman, I believe he was an intelligent guy. I believe he knew that what he was doing was bullshit. The, you know, what they did with the, we haven't even really gotten into, the knife they pulled from the lake and telling the jury that, you know, I'm not saying that this knife was involved in the murders, but this knife was involved in the murders kind of thing. And, and pitching this this satanic ritual killing angle, which again, I've had people that support the conviction telling me that's ridiculous. They didn't actually think that. That's not how it's presented at trial. And that's crap. In closing arguments, John Fogelman pointed at Damien Eccles and said, when you look inside that man, you'll see there's no soul in there. That man doesn't have a soul. It was every had everything to do with uh, Satanism and and his his religion, his beliefs, uh, and that's how they spun this to a jury. And no, I don't think that John Fogelman believed it. No, I don't think Gary Gitchell believed it. I do think that Jerry Driver believed it. I bet he doesn't now. Um, he of course now he's he's passed on, but in later years when a light was shined on it, I, I think that a lot of them probably have realized that they that they screwed up. But I don't believe that Fogelman or Gitchell ever believed it. But they needed their conviction, and they didn't care. And John Fogelman, like you said, is was a smart guy, and he knew how to win a case. It was it's not about finding the truth for him. I think it was about getting a conviction, and he was very good. He against all odds, really when Ms. Kelly couldn't testify in or refused to testify in Baldwin and Eccles' trial, they had nothing, and he built a case out of thin air, you know, and out come these, you know, jailhouse snitch that recanted, which we'll get in later, you know, later recanted. Uh, you, got, you got Narlene Hollingsworth's story they put out there. Uh, we haven't got into the softball girls yet. I mean, just and just really just built this case out of nothing. And then later we find out that the the foreman of the jury went in, manipulated his way into the jury because he knew the case. He knew about the confessions of Jesse Miss Kelly, and he wanted to convict. And then later, one of the reasons why this case ended in an Alfred plea was jury misconduct when they went through their notes and found out that the jury was considering Jesse Miss Kelly's confession when they convicted Damien and Jason when that was never introduced at trial, which is illegal, blatantly illegal. And I don't know if anybody in power was behind that, but short answer, no. I don't think John Fogelman ever believed it. Brittany wants to know if you've tried reaching out to Aaron Hutchison. I have not, and I won't. Um, and, and again, there have been some people that have said, well, there may be some truth in the story. Even the, the John Mark Byers thing is interesting. I, based on what I heard and analyzing all these interviews, both the audio and the transcripts, um, and again, you know, a lot of people think maybe that's just tea leaves or whatever, but there is a process to that, and and when you in, when you analyze that interview, it becomes abundantly clear that he doesn't know what happened. He doesn't. I mean, he may have an idea of what he thought at the beginning, what he thought maybe happened based on his own experience. Maybe he actually did witness these weird orgies that he was going to, but really, that's just a repeating of his mom's story down to the blackface and everything. So maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but I don't think he ever actually knew what happened. Um, even in naming John Mark Byers, he wasn't there, you know, so who knows, wh who knows why? And really his memory has been so corrupted. And I, I've, I've read his later interviews where he says he doesn't even know what actually happened. 
It, he doesn't know what he actually saw at this point. So nothing that he can say. He can come to us and say, actually, Bob, I was there, and I saw this person do it, and I couldn't in good conscience believe him because there's no way that he knows anymore. If he did know at one time, he doesn't know anymore. His memories have been too, uh, too tampered with by now. And the the emotional trauma that he went through because of this and mental trauma, it's not worth it at all to pick that scab again and bring him back up. And I don't think that he was all that relevant at all. I, I really don't. I think that whoever killed these boys, Aaron Hutchison doesn't know anything about it. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week's Friday follow-up. And make sure you tune in this Sunday for a very interesting interview with Tim Clementi. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Professional podcaster right here. That's right. <laughs> That's- that's right. God, what a douche. I'm sorry. <laughs> Joking. Joking. Yeah. yeah. We're allowed to have a little humor. I'm sick. Took phone. some cold medicine. I'm feeling a little loopy. Yeah, a little loopy. I like that. Mm-hmm. Makes for some good audio. Yeah. I don't think so. Vicki Hutchison has said multiple. <laughs> Cute little bugger. Yeah. Relax. Whatever you want to do. Skip. Wow. Good line, huh? That was good. You guys like that? that was nice. Pulled that one right out. You're welcome. Very fitting. <laughs> Did you know that 66% of men lose their hair by age 35? Not me. 39 got a nice full head of black hair.
I'll just show the folks in the video that you have a full head of hair so they know. See? Luscious, luscious head of hair. That's right. Mike has. That's right. Did you intentionally pull your head out of the frame of the camera while you did that? <laughs> no, I didn't realize <laughs> I wasn't in the camera. <laughs> now show them your hair. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.